The following message was recorded during the Friends of Israel 2011 National Prophecy Conference season. These meetings were held in Winona Lake, Indiana and Lancaster, Pennsylvania. For more audio resources from the Friends of Israel, visit us at foi.org. Well, it started toward the end of January, and it was called different things. One of the things it was called, the uprisings in the Middle East, the Arab Spring. And uh, if you care to follow along, I believe that the uh, study sheet single-page outline of my remarks is, is being uh, passed out. Uh, for note-taking or following, if you care to. But, uh, but, but it, you know, it suddenly it sprung on the scene. It wasn't predicted. It wasn't expected. But there it was. And we try to get a handle on it, particularly from a prophetic standpoint. What in the world is going on? How does it fit prophetically? And I think there are some decided implications uh, as we move along here toward the end of the message and the end of uh, our comments this morning. But what is it? Uh, Certainly a part of it is a real desire on the part of Arab people living under oppressive dictatorships, a real desire on their part uh, for more freedom, for democracy. They're aware of the world. They uh, have the Internet. And a part of it is is definitely that. But there are much more and many more issues than that. And what I'd like to do is walk around the region a little bit. Uh, We have our maps up here, uh, keeping in mind, of course, that behind it all, there is an extreme attachment still that occurs and the designs of Islam. Islam is not simply another religious movement, religious group, religious denomination, religion, whatever. Islam is a religious, cultural, political conspiracy to conquer the world. That's what Islam is. We have to realize that. And so when we're bombarded by media images of uh, this just being another world religion, it's not simply that. It is much more than that. We have to recognize it. So let's look at some of the countries that, that rose up. And you are very much aware of Libya on the map to the east or to the left on the map of Egypt. And uh, Libya, day-to-day developments, Qaddafi, uh, uh, will he survive? What are the issues? Who are the rebels? There are a lot of unanswered questions about Libya. But one thing that is not unanswered is this, that in many of the hard-to-control areas of Libya, al-Qaeda is rearming and taking over gradually. That's what's happening in Libya today. It's not a pleasant scene, no matter what happens with Gaddafi. Al-Qaeda is exploiting Libya for its purposes. Egypt, uh, Mubarak is no more. But what do we have in Egypt? Uh, just to the, uh, to the south and to the west, west or to the left of, uh, of Israel, tiny Israel. You can hardly see Israel on the map, right? It's there, sandwiched in on the, uh, um, that would be the eastern side of the Mediterranean there with country, hostile countries all around it. But the Supreme Council of Armed Forces has taken over Egypt 
and is now making decisions. And frankly, the early signals are not good. They're not good at all. And yet the role of the Western media has been to champion the cause of the uprising. Uh, that's, that's for sure. Uh, behind the uprising, of course, is the Muslim Brotherhood, uh, Islamists, who, when I use the term Islamists, I mean the most radical form of Islam that seeks total control over its people and uh, over the processes of government. Uh, Islamists are gaining uh, the Sinai, which is the uh, area to the south and to the west of uh, Israel. Uh, the Sinai Peninsula is in chaos, absolute chaos. Jumping over to Syria, Syria is to the north and to the east of Israel on the map. Uh, many have been killed. Um, Bashar Assad is oppressive. He's a, he's a murderer. He's a, he is a, literally a totalitarian criminal. Uh, crowds started taking to the streets calling for Assyrian freedom. And uh, they were gunned down. Thousands have been, have been killed, have been put down uh, by Bashar Assad. Um, it's a very difficult situation. It's difficult for Israel, uh, right on its border, uh, and it's uh, difficult in terms of freedom-loving people because they are definitely not winning out in Syria. Uh, Yemen, uh, that would be to the south, way to the south in the Gulf states, uh, south of Saudi Arabia. Uh, Yemen uh, has been throughout the years about the best that United States could hope for. They fought Al-Qaeda and, um, and were reasonably friendly to the United States and were not really a problem to Israel. Uh, Yemen, the protests are underway. It's a very poor country. But unfortunately, with Yemen there to the south represents one of the best opportunities for the Islamists, those who believe in the most radical form of Islam, uh, to take control. Uh, Tunisia. Uh, Tunisia is uh, far to the uh, west of Israel throughout the Mediterranean. It's to the west of Egypt, uh, Libya, and then to the north on the Mediterranean. Tunisia is where the uprising started uh, back in late January as the people were feeling suffocated and uh, though the leadership of the country has been sent packing, uh, it is not a good situation. Uh, radicals are in control and taking over, and Christian persecution is a big item in Tunisia. It's very difficult for the few Christians who are left there. Now, to understand, therefore, what's going on in the Middle East we have to understand the designs of the Muslim Brotherhood um, because the Muslim Brotherhood, which, by the way, has been around a long time, 1928. You know, we often say uh, the truth that the Friends of Israel was born in 1938, 10 years before the modern state of Israel, and it's a wonderful story to tell Jewish people because here were these Christians in the city of Philadelphia who had a biblical sense a biblical um, vision for Israel, uh, though there was no Israel. It was 10 years before the founding of the modern state of Israel. 
but they uh, founded the Friends of Israel, took Israel to the name. Ten years before that, however, the Muslim Brotherhood was around and it was founded. And it was founded in 1928 for two purposes. Number one, to implement Sharia law, Islamic law worldwide. So there's the religion, the politics, and the culture. It's everything in the same package. And secondly, it was founded to establish the global Islamic state, put it all together in one big package. The Muslim Brotherhood has a motto. It's online and you can read it. Jihad is our path, martyrdom is our inspiration. And so it functions as a worldwide incubator for jihadist takeover theology on behalf of Islam. And it operates in any way that it can. It operates directly, it operates in subgroups, front, front groups, front organizations of different names. The Muslim Brotherhood has spawned Hamas. We saw that last night in Gaza. It has uh, spawned Al-Qaeda. And it operates even in the United States and Canada, particularly on campuses through the Muslim Students Association, where they have chapters. They are on literally hundreds of college and university campuses in the United States and in Canada as well, where they are recruiting young people into their fold. The Muslim Brotherhood objective in these uprisings is to use them to their advantage and to exercise greater control over those countries. You know, the Muslim Brotherhood was illegal in Egypt under Mubarak. Today, under the Supreme Council, the Military Council, the Muslim Brotherhood is a legal organization and it operates there in Egypt. So a lot of things are playing out. They're not good. They're not good for us. They're not good for Israel. But the developments in Israel uh, probably are the most troubling. And while there was no question about it that the images that we saw on our televisions, on our TV screens of people rising up in Egypt uh, portrayed as freedom celebrations. Um, and I'm sure many of the people had that as, as their objective. Uh, but unfortunately, even among those crowds, there were all kinds of old hatreds that were not revealed to us by the Western press. Uh, by old hatreds, I mean signs and hatreds against Israel, against the West, against Jews, and against Egypt's Christian Coptic population. Now, Coptic, you've heard of the Coptic Christians, simply means Egyptian Christians. And that would be the broad spectrum of all kinds of Christianity in Egypt. Of course, there is a, an evangelical strain among the Coptic Christians. And some of you may have met or know some Coptic Christians who are fine believers, uh, Bible-believing people, uh, and, and saved by the blood of our Lord Jesus Christ. Just wonderful, wonderful people. Well, how this plays out and has played out in Egypt, if you were against Mubarak, 
one of the worst things you could say about him would be to, you know, say he was a Zionist or say he was a tool of Israel. Or, and that's what happened on the streets in Cairo and other places. Mubarak was being pictured uh, with a Star of David. He was being pictured as an Israeli tool and a traitor to Egypt. That was the worst thing they could say about Mubarak, and they put that on him. Do you remember when Mrs. Laura Logan, the CBS correspondent who was reporting on developments in Egypt, you remember when she was repeatedly sexually assaulted during a, quote, freedom celebration, and the crowd was screaming out, Jew, Jew, Jew. She's not Jewish. But they were picking on what they believed was the worst thing they could say about her, that she was a Jew. Took CBS four days to even report on it. And I think the reason why, in my opinion, because the Western media narrative was so far different than the reality on the street. CBS did not report on it until a conservative publication out of New York City, which there aren't many, but the New York Post is reasonably conservative, was breaking the story, and then CBS reported on it. Last illustration of that uh, particular problem is research and polling done by a very credible organization, the Pew Research Center. It's not good. The positive attitudes among the Egyptian people toward the Muslim Brotherhood spells real trouble for where that's going. And that's a huge border on the south with Israel. So that's the real, uh, real situation as to how it's playing out in Egypt. Now, all of this, the role of Iran is, uh, is an important part of what we're talking about here. We at Friends of Israel have had, um, we have been privy, we'll put it that way, to numerous briefings by Israeli diplomats. They've taken place in more public gatherings in which they would be on the record and anything can be quoted, such as last Friday night listening to Ambassador Michael Oren in a synagogue in the Philadelphia area but also in off-the-record briefings um, where we do not uh, uh, bring forth the information that was brought forth um, at the Consulate of Israel in Philadelphia, the Embassy of Israel in, in D.C. And there's never a time I've noticed, here's what I've noticed, there's never a time in which they're doing a briefing. They can be doing a briefing about Egypt, uh, the Middle East uprisings, whatever. There is never a time that they don't talk about Iran. And they don't say all options are on the table. And so Israel, Israel and the Israelis are very much aware that the biggest and the most immediate threat uh, to Israel is Iran. Ahmadinejad, uh, was, he's been in power now for about six years. He's held these um, uh, World Without Zionism conferences um, many statements about Israel needing to be wiped off the map. And, of course, he intends to build Iran as a nuclear power. And we've seen that play out. We see even within the past few days 
that apparently Iran has enriched enough uranium, doesn't have a bomb, but has an apparently enriched enough uranium for four bombs. Um, I remember last September, that would be following our, you know, our summer conference here last year, when Iran started enriching uranium or intended to at a higher rate and then was attacked by a computer worm, which shut things down for, for a while. And of course, it was some sort of cyber attack of undeclared origin, let's just put it that way. And that has happened again. That, has, that scenario has played out twice. And as I looked at things, and I've said at these conferences, God will not let Iran destroy Israel. It's not going to happen. We know that. But, but what's going to happen? <laughs> we don't know. We live in such interesting times. And uh, we don't know what's going to happen. I thought to myself, well, maybe... That might be the way, but apparently Iran has really moved ahead, has, has enriched uh, uranium, and that's where it is. But what is Iran's view of these uprisings in the Arab world? Iran loves them. It's really great, just so it doesn't come to their country. That's their view. And they're tapping in right now to the whole idea of the Islamic Messiah, the whole idea of the return of the 12th Imam. 12th Imam, 12th Islamic religious leader in succession from Muhammad. The year was 900. He was five years old and went into hiding. He is the one that is to return as the Messiah, the Islamic Messiah, the guided one, the one who will set things right in the world in their view. It's all part and parcel. And very recently, uh, uh, Iranian uh, television has confirmed its support of the uprising throughout the Arab world, certainly not in its own country, but throughout the Arab world, and it's, it's so clear that Iran sees this as an opportunity for them to gain competitive advantage. So they recently, in recent months, uh, released a, 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 a video. Um, it's new evidence of how they view <clears throat> unrest in the Middle East. And uh, <clears throat> they view it as a signal that the Islamic Messiah is about to return. And of course, when the Islamic Messiah returns, the 12th Imam, he has several jobs to do. Uh, one, of course, is to destroy Israel. Uh, another is to crush the Western powers. But there's a, there's a third task of the Islamic Messiah, and that is to bring dissident Islamic peoples in line. And so it seems like it's almost as if they look forward to chaos in order that out of chaos will come the return of the Islamic Messiah and he will make things right. They have a gospel. There's a good news. The good news scenario connected with the return of the 12th Imam, the Messiah, is the defeat of Israel. That's the best news of all in their minds. So here we go. One more counterfeit of Jesus the real Messiah. Well, 
there is a tremendous pressure build up on Israel and uh, all kinds of things. If we just look at the countries that are surrounding Israel, Israel's neighbors to the north, southern Lebanon. In fact, we have a, a closer up view of southern Lebanon and its current rocket ranges. Back in 06, the Lebanon War, um, Hezbollah shot 16,000 rockets into northern Israel. They are now armed with 40,000 rockets that can go as far south as all the major population centers of Israel, including Beersheba, way in the south. And, uh, and so we, we look around, that's southern Lebanon. We go back to Syria uh, on the north and uh, east of Israel. Um, the border had been quiet until recently in May. There were several attempted incursions from Syria with mobs of Palestinians transported in to break Israel's barrier, to break Israel's borders, I should say, uh, there to the north and to the east of Israel. So there's that problem. Uh, the Egyptian problem is, is a real one because uh, if you look at the, the, the border to the south of Israel with Egypt, and you see Egypt there, uh, it's a long border. It's a very, very long border. And so troubling things happening in, uh, in Egypt uh, are certainly troubling uh, to Israel. Um, Mubarak was no gem of a leader. Um, but one thing that he did do, the peace agreement with Sadat that was struck between Prime Minister Begin of Israel and Anwar Sadat of Egypt, when Mubarak came into power after Sadat was murdered, um, Mubarak honored the peace treaty. Now, right now, I heard Ambassador Oren the other night say that the army has confirmed, uh, the army of Egypt has confirmed they will honor the peace treaty uh, with Israel, but, uh, but who knows? The way things are in the Middle East, uh, words seem to mean very, very little. Um, there have been all kinds of uh, Palestinian uprisings, um, but some new developments. Have you heard about the agreement between Hamas in control of Gaza on Israel's border there in the west and Fatah, President Abbas, in control of the West Bank, what's being termed the West Bank, the Palestinian populations of biblical Judea and Samaria? Uh, well, they've struck an agreement and... Um, it's agreement to work together. So now we have Hamas that has declared the, their absolute goal is the destruction of Israel, and frankly, not only the destruction of Israel, but the death of Jewish people worldwide. That is Hamas's goal. It's real clear. It's in their charter. Joining with Fatah supposed to be, and President Abbas supposed to be the moderate to make peace with Israel? The same man who has said, no Jewish state, no matter what you call it. Well, as I said last night, we call it Israel. Uh, we love it, we support it. And uh, these are all actions that are currently underway against Israel. New flotilla of ships. It's been a fascinating uh, situation because this the new flotilla of many more ships was to be gathered together and go up against Israel's blockade, weapons blockade of Gaza. 
and that was to happen in May. Didn't happen in May. Was to happen in June. Didn't happen in June. Was to happen in July. And here we go like this, and there have been several very interesting developments. Some of the participants that were scheduled for these flotillas have bailed out. Uh, apparently have seen a different point of view about some of this. There is no humanitarian crisis in Gaza. None. Zero. Zilch. Goods go freely into Gaza through Israeli checkpoints on land. The purpose of the flotilla was to break Israel's will, to confront Israel's blockade, to engender world opinion when anybody comes up against Israel, the press of the world, the media of the world takes their side. And that was the objective. This flotilla hasn't happened. And some very interesting things with it because the flotilla is, um, uh, some, there were mechanical problems that were experienced and some of the ships couldn't get together because of that. And then Greece, this is fascinating. As Turkey has become more anti-Israel, Greece has become more pro-Israel and Greece has stepped in and stopped some of the boats. So we're not sure how this will play out, but it's always Israel on edge, is it not? Israel on edge, Israel having to respond, Israel having to confront the nations of the world at the United Nations and all of that. And finally, this vote that is scheduled, or apparently will happen at the United Nations in September, and that is a vote uh, in favor of Palestinian statehood. Well, can you imagine a vote to establish a Hamas Fatah terror state right next to Israel? What, what will it mean for Israel? It'll mean world pressure. It'll mean a pressure-filled situation, but it will not, in my opinion, change things on the ground. Israel will not just go away and shrink to uh, eight miles wide at one point and... Uh, um, President Obama's statement about 67 borders was horrific. Uh, um, that would mean the Western Wall would go back to the Palestinian Authority. It would mean the Garden Tomb that we visit we couldn't get to, I'm sure, all those things. So these are tremendous pressures uh, on the state of Israel and votes and flotillas and all of this. Well, prophetic implications. I think there are two possibilities and both of them I see is stage setting and one of those possible and and these are not necessarily mutually exclusive because I believe both of them are related to the future tribulation period after the rapture of the church and I believe that what we're seeing on the scene today is stage setting preparation for those times for example Ezekiel chapter 38 talks about this massive invasion of Israel, and it names geographic areas and countries which can be translated into literal countries of the world today. So Rosh is here, Russia. Persia is there, which is Iran. And that's the beginning. Mentioned this before here. Uh, that was, a few years ago, an unlikely alliance. It, I mean, it's here in the Bible, Ezekiel, but highly unlikely. Today, it's very likely. You can just see the coming together of Russia and Iran and how they are working together on certain things. 
uh, Magog, uh, Central Asian Islamic uh, Republics of the former Soviet Union, Sudan, Libya, Turkey. Turkey is real prominent in this list. It's called something else, but there are actually several areas that relate to Turkey that are mentioned here. And that did not make sense. I mean, Turkey was the first Muslim country to recognize Israel. Uh, Israelis, where did they love to go on vacation? They loved to go to Turkey. And they did, by thousands and, and more. Uh, water agreements between Israel and Turkey. Military agreements existed between Israel and Turkey. Israel was invited in to use Turkish airspace to train its, um, its air force. Um, all these things, and it didn't make sense then, um, but it certainly makes sense today. Um, radical Islam has become increasingly influential in Turkey. It is bad news for Israel, and uh, it explains Israel's concern about what's going on in Turkey. But with it is an interesting exchange, because uh, Greece, which was decidedly more anti-Israel, but is not part of this list, has been, become decidedly more pro-Israel. Fascinating realignment of nations that's taking place right before us that fits the pattern of Ezekiel chapter 38 and 39. And the big question, of course, is when there. And there are different thoughts and opinions about that. And so if you want to ask us that tomorrow night in our question and answer session, but uh, actually I think most of us feel it's probably early in the tribulation uh, period that that would occur. But there's another stage setting, I believe, pressure cooker build up against Israel. I believe it's a setup for Daniel chapter 9, where in Daniel chapter 9 in verse 26, the prince who is to come, by the way, who is the Antichrist, coordinates exactly with the first beast of Revelation chapter 13, con confirms a covenant of peace with Israel. Why in the world would Israel turn itself over to that or one individual, the power of one individual? out of a sense of desperation, I'm sure, out of a great yearning for peace, out of a pressure cooker buildup with the nations of the world turning against Israel. Well, it's that covenant of Daniel 9 that begins the tribulation period. I believe uh, the Antichrist, Prince to Come, um, plus the second beast of Revelation chapter 13 is the false prophet, the religious one, who directs worship to the Antichrist. Also, the third person of the tribulation's unholy trinity is the, is the dragon, uh, Satan. So now we have it. It's, it's religion, it's political, it's military, it's all of the above. The tribulation period uh, begins, and I think we see the buildup there. Pressure cooker buildup on Israel, where they flee to, to peace that they believe this strong man can enforce. Of course, the strong man, the Antichrist, turns against them three and a half years in, desecrates the temple, 
and then uh, the worst persecution the Jewish people have ever felt. Well, this means something for all of us, and I think that it means this. As we see the realignment of nations, as we see the pressure cooker build up on Israel, for us it means the stage is set for the tribulation and that even closer is the rapture of the church of Jesus Christ in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 16, for the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel, and with the trumpet of God and the dead in Christ, believers in this age, will rise first. Then we who are alive, believers dead, believers alive from this age, who are alive, church age, uh, and remain, shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and thus we shall always be with the Lord. That's our prophetic hope. Annette and I were um, watching a television preacher briefly on Sunday morning from our home in Bucks County, Pennsylvania. And uh, the first impression, hadn't heard from him before, and he didn't even know who he was. Very, uh, very wonderful presentation. Presented himself well, seemed to handle the word of God well. Uh, he was talking about the tribulation period. He was talking about the coming Antichrist and signs of the times. Liked everything we saw and heard until he then proceeded to teach the believers how they could prepare for the coming Antichrist. Dead wrong. Our prophetic hope is not the best way to prepare for the coming Antichrist. Our prophetic hope is rooted in the Lord Jesus Christ. I think it's very well expressed in John chapter 14, verse 3, as the Lord uh, was leaving, he says, And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. There's our prophetic hope. Now, here we are. All these events going on in the world, and we're living through them. Um, there are times when we say for sure, um, it's a very exciting time in which to live. Uh, we sense it. We know it. Um, it can be troubling, for sure. Uh, it can be very exciting as we put our faith in the Lord and, and realize that he's the one in ultimate control. But there is a tendency that we have to guard against, and that is this, to get so caught up in an emotional focus on all these events that are going around us, especially today, when we really need to focus on our greatest hope, we, our greatest hope, our greatest emotional focus, our prophetic hope is to see our Savior face to face. So he is our ultimate history. He's our life, our hope, our all. The world is not moving itself uh, toward greater truth. The world around us is establishing itself in error. And one thing after another, and I'm just fearful for the church, the true church of Jesus Christ, as I see that, that error penetrating the fringes and being accepted in 
It's a very, very dangerous situation. But our responsibility in the midst of, of all of this is to be light, uh, to be truth, to be hope to the people around us. Father, we commit uh, this day to you. We commit the words and the teachings of this prophecy conference to you. And Father, I pray that uh, through a conference like this, that we would be driven in a passionate sense to search the truths of the Word of God. And then, Father, driven in a passionate sense to communicate your truth to those about us. In a needy world and needy people, touch our hearts. Give us that passion, we pray in Jesus' precious name. Amen.